morning, everybody. Come on, a little more energy. Good morning, everybody. It was like a begrudging good morning. Excuse me. Anybody see the TikTok hearings this week? I was a little under the weather. I was laid up. I found myself with a rare opportunity to watch a little daytime TV. Um, maybe you missed it. They had the CEO of the social media app TikTok was summoned to appear before Congress to answer questions regarding your data security, America's data security, and the risk that's imposed on the United States. TikTok's parent company, you probably heard some of this, ByteDance is a Chinese-based company, and as a result, the reality is the CCP, the Communist Party of China, to the degree it desires, anytime it wants, really, can make TikTok essentially do with its data whatever it wants done. Now, to say the hearings were contentious would be an understatement. Um, in fact, I, I'm not sure they were hearings at all. Mostly, it was just this bipartisan beatdown <laughs> of this guy. Um, the political grandstanding was sometimes laugh out loud funny, with the congressmen and congresswomen trying to outdo one another. I'll, if you think you hate him, let me show you how much I hate him. And uh, uh, you know, I, I listen. I don't have uh, TikTok on my phone. I don't do short-term video or short-form videos. I'm hardly an influencer. I don't have a dog in the fight. But I, I do know enough not to refer to the app as TikTok, which a couple of the, the Congress people did on several occasions, which kind of kind of <laughs> blows your cover a little bit. They piled on this guy. I don't know, maybe he deserved it, maybe he didn't. One harsher than the other. My favorite kind of chuckling from my bed moment was when this one representative just annihilated the guy, made some really strong accusations about him. I actually pulled the transcript online because I don't know, this is just me, I thought it was so, so funny. She accused the guy of, of doing nothing to protect the safety of the committee's chairperson, essentially, essentially putting her at risk, and he knew it, putting her life in danger. And she concluded her accusations and, and this verbal berating with this quote, quote, and excuse the language a little bit, you damn well know that you cannot protect the data and security of this committee or the 150 million users of your app because it's an extension of the CCP. And with that, I yield back. Mr. Chu, who was the CEO, he calmly leaned forward, he turned on his microphone and said, Madam Chairperson, may I respond? And she said, no, we're moving on. <laughs> I just kind of laughed, because I'm like, I'm, I mean, this was made for TV theater, right? Democrats, Republicans, independents, conservatives, progressives, they can't agree on anything. But they all agreed that tic-tac is a serious threat, <laughs> right? It's got to go. Threats to empires, threats to personal political power, it, it turns out it, it almost always makes for very strange bedfellows, you know? Which leads us this morning to kind of the next telling, the next piece of our story, um, the life and death of Jesus the King. We're, we're looking at, at Jesus' disciple Peter's final known retelling of what he saw, what he heard, what he experienced as Jesus' most famous disciple. And I call it the final retelling because as far as we know, at least in, in found materials, this is Peter's um, final recounting given to his traveling companion, John Mark. You know it is the Gospel of Mark. And it's his final retelling because Peter is, uh, unbeknownst to him at the time, but he's awaiting what would turn out to be his crucifixion in, in Rome under Emperor Nero. Now, if you've been with us, here's what we've discovered so far. 
because time is short for Peter, and he's aware of it, right? John Mark and him, they, they don't spend a lot of time on ancillary information about Jesus' bio. They get in their recounting of what's going on with Jesus right at it. Who he is, what does he want? Who is this guy, what does he want from me? And so the book opens with what I, I think might be the grandest statement one could write. Even Peter, right? Peter now is probably in his mid-50s somewhere. He's been traveling the world, doing what Jesus asked him to do, to go and make disciples of all nations. He's been doing this for 30 years. And it's given him some time to bring a little context to who Jesus was and what he wanted to, to kind of outline it a little bit, to frame it. And here's, after 30 years, how he decided to start his retelling. Chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. What a twofold statement. The opening line, right? We've been hanging on this for a couple of weeks, but the opening line, in that opening line, Peter sets apart Christianity from every other religion, every other non-religion in the world that's ever existed. Because for Peter, Christianity, it, it is not a plan, it is not a, it's not advice, it's not a practice, a philosophy, a path, knowledge, steps. Every other religion that exists, I challenge you to go out and look for them. There is some way, some pattern, some path of doing things that you must undertake in order to get to God. Not Christianity. Not for Peter after 30 years. For Peter, it was simple. Christianity is not about something you must do. It was about someone and something that he had done. It was, at its heart, news. This is the good news. For Peter, even though he found himself on the eve of his own crucifixion, for Peter, he still, in prison in Rome, he still thought this news was good. And why? Because for 30 years, 30 years of hardship, 30 years of loss, 30 years of seeing his fellow disciples crushed by empires, he wrote it right here, he still believed that his rabbi, the one who had chosen him on the shores of Galilee some 33 years earlier. He still believed that that man, his friend, was the son of God. 30 years later, he still believed it. Which is why we do, right? Why do we believe Jesus is who he said he is? Well, because one of the reasons is Peter did. And there's a firsthand recounting of, of everything that he saw and experienced. And so what was the good news? If this is news, if Christianity is about news, what was the good news? That Greek word that's translated oftentimes as the gospel. Peter says that Jesus spread this gospel. What was it? Well, everywhere Jesus went, he would say the same thing. Peter had Mark write it down. He, he went into Galilee, and what did he do? He proclaimed the good news of God. What was the gospel for Jesus? If you went up to Jesus and said, Jesus, what is the good news you've come to declare? Jesus would say, here it is, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. This is the good news. Here it is. The time has now come. Everything that's been prophesied, talked about, been waited for, everything you've been looking for has now come. The kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? It's the place where God rules, where his ways rule the days. What is the kingdom of God? It's a, it's a kingdom of conscience. It's a kingdom of the heart. You, you know the characteristics of it, right? We'll talk about them a little bit next week, but it, it's a kingdom of peace, patience, gentleness, kindness. It's a kingdom of humility, of forgiveness and justice, of faith and hope and love. 
In fact, love would be the greatest attribute of this kingdom. It's a, it's a kingdom with one new solitary rule that replaced all the others. As I've loved you, so you must love one another. Good news, that kingdom has come. And why? Because the king of that kingdom has come near, Jesus the king. And where Jesus the king goes, the kingdom goes with him. Interesting. Because as you read the story, you discover something. New kings and coming kingdoms, then, just like now, are very real threats to existing empires and personal political powers. And those threats then, like they do today, they tend to make some pretty strange bedfellows. Jesus tells everyone everywhere, you need to make a decision about the news. That's what we've been talking about, right? You can reject it as fake news. You can, you can believe it and ignore it or discount it if you like. Or you can do, you can follow up with, with Jesus, what Jesus told us to do in light of it. He said you should believe it, but not just believe it. It's not enough just to believe it. You need to repent. And what did that mean? It meant you needed to change the way you think, the way you live. You need to reorient and realign your life, the direction of your life, in light of this new news. We do this with news all of the time, right? We've talked about it over the last few weeks. Smoking can harm you. What are you going to do about it? Too much sun can kill you. What are you going to do about it? Jesus says of, of the new kingdom of God, I mean, but the best example is... Example is um, if I asked you how many of you think diet and exercise would improve your life, I would imagine all of you would raise your hand. But the question becomes, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> right? It's no different. That, the story is no different. Jesus is showing up and going, the kingdom of God is here. What are you going to do about it? I love the, the detail that Peter wants Mark to get across in his opening words. It, it was so important to him, he had Mark write it down twice within a couple of sentences in the opening chapter. Peter says that soon after Jesus had come along the shores of the Galilee and called he and his brother Andrew, along with James and John, right, to follow them. We talked about that and the significance of that last week. Into, in, they followed him. They headed into the city of Capernaum. And it says that Jesus would go into the temple in Capernaum and begin to teach. But here's the important detail. Peter says, Mark, write this down. The people were amazed at his teaching. Why? Because he taught them as one who had authority not as the teachers of the law. Again, a couple of sentences later, the people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching, and with authority. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Authority, authority. This, this teacher, there's new news, and he's talking about it with authority. That word literally means out of the original stuff. It's from the same root as the word author. He speaks about this stuff like he owns it, like it's his idea. He's not just clarifying something they already knew or, or simply interpreting scriptures in the way the teachers of the law did at that time. His listeners sensed something that he was explaining to them, essentially the story of their lives, almost as the author of their lives, and they were dumbfounded by it. Again, the word, right? As he taught this way, the word news. What is this new news? And word about him spread quickly over the whole region. Peter mentions to Mark over and over again the concept of crowds. Something that Jesus is talking about. He's teaching with this authority, right? Like he knows, like these are his ideas. 
There's something about what he's doing that is drawing massive crowds. I heard this week, I don't know if it's true, but I, I heard this week that every chapter in Mark's gospel, except for two, has the word crowd involved in it. That's how important that story is, that, that people are gathering, right? Crowds are a big part of the story. And you know what crowds are? I mean, it's like 150 million TikTok users. You know what crowds are? Crowds are threatening, aren't they? To empires and to powers. Crowds, crowds can make for strange bedfellows. And, and now Peter, he, he starts off after this introduction, he starts off into these rapid fire stories, one after another, about crowds, right? And, what, and this good news, this news concept. And, and you know a lot of the stories, and, and oftentimes we pull them apart one by one and we go through them, and you could spend weeks on each one of the stories. But I'm telling you, when you string these stories together, you start to see like a pattern emerge. You ever look at one of those pictures, right, where you see the dots and there's nothing but dots, but you stare at it long enough and all of a sudden this thing comes out and you go, oh, I didn't see it before, but I see it now. That's what's going on here, right? If, if we kind of look at the, the forest and not the singular trees, what you'll start to see is a jaw-dropping understanding of, of this news begins to emerge. I'm going to show you what I mean. I'm going to try to do a good job of it because I, I think if you're here... You know, there's two kinds of folks that are in the room this morning. I would guess there's folks that are committed followers of Jesus. I, th I think if, if looking at the forest and not the trees, I think it'll help you understand who he was and what he was doing and, and what he wants. And I think if you're here this morning and you're like, well, you know, I, I'm open to the things of Jesus. I'm checking these things out. Maybe you're not even open to it. Maybe you're here because somebody wanted you to be here. Maybe you don't even like Christians, and sometimes I can understand why. I think this will help you understand Jesus apart from Christianity or religion or maybe even his followers. It'll, it'll illuminate you the, the difference between Jesus and, and maybe Christianity as you've understood it or it's been explained to you before. And so let's jump into it. Story one. Again, still in the first chapter, I want you to understand, sense the urgency with, at, with which Peter is making Mark get to these things. He says, a man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Massive amounts of information communicated in the first four words, a man with leprosy. And in the first century, in Galilee, in Israel, there was one thing that both the Jews and the Romans, both the religious powers and the secular powers of the day, there was one thing everybody agreed on, and it was what you do with people with leprosy. You shun them. You marginalize them. You outcast them. The secular would call them sick. The religious would call them unclean. You can call them whatever you want. You just don't go anywhere near them. They were outcasts from the community, from the temple, even from their own families. They were, weren't permitted to watch their children grow up. They weren't permitted to, to be home with their spouses. They'd oftentimes have to watch at a distance as somebody else raised their family. They live off by themselves in what were called colonies. And do you know why they would have to colonize? Because there was no one else that would help them. The only people that would come to their help or rescue were other lepers themselves. And for the Jewish folks in Galilee in particular, the religious practices that they were to, to, to hold to were quite clear regarding the treatment of lepers. From the Torah, right? The Leviticus chapter 13. They all knew this. They memorized this as children. This is what happens when you see somebody that, that has leprosy. Anyone with such a defiling disease must wear torn clothes, 
they must let their hair be unkempt, cover the lower part of their face, and cry out, unclean, unclean. They literally had to self-identify it. As long as they, they have the disease, they remain unclean. They must live alone. They must live outside of the camp. That was their lot. That was their destiny. But this leper, this leper notices something about this rabbi. Because instead of staying far off, and instead of yelling to Jesus, unclean, unclean, about himself, instead of thinking that his unclean status would be passed to Jesus if they were to, to, to draw near, he seems to think very differently about this rabbi than any other rabbi. He thinks differently about this authority, this king, and his kingdom than the current king and kingdom that he resides in. He stops seeing himself for a moment as being unclean as the lead story of his life, and he begins to reorient himself to the news of a new kingdom. And he begins to see the fact that Jesus is clean as the lead story, and instead of fearing that his unclean nature might pass along to Jesus, instead he makes a crazy assumption that Jesus' clean nature somehow could pass to him. And instead of saying, be warned, I'm unclean, I'm going to make you unclean too, the leper in the story begs, make me clean. You are clean and you can make me clean too. Jesus sees the face of this man expressed in what he said. If you're willing to make me clean, he said, I know you can. I know you can. I hope you will. I know you can. And he just sees it set against the religious and the social stigmas of the day which had conspired to put this man in this place. And this new teaching, this new kingdom, what is this new teaching with authority? It stood and it begins to stand in such utter opposition to both the religious and cultural norms of the day. They had an old teaching. This was a new one. And it was going to be very different than the old one. Jesus sees this. He sees this man and he, he, sees, he sees the religious on one side shunning him and, he, and, and he, sees, he sees the political elite on another side shunning him. And he, he looks at the man and he understands what, what sin in this world has done. Right? What, broken, what our broken humanity has done and how it's manifested it, itself in this disease in this man, right? And, and Peter tells Mark, I want, you, I want you to write down what Jesus' reaction was. And it's interesting because he uses a really powerful word when he wrote it in the Greek. So powerful that scribes later on would translate it differently because they were afraid it would make Jesus look bad. But in the NIV, they've translated it the way it was originally written, which is that Jesus, upon seeing all this, was indignant. Other translations, if you look, maybe you have one at home or you grab one on your phone, it says that Jesus had compassion on the man. But Peter's gone, no, that wasn't it. I mean, he did. But there was a stronger emotion at work in this new king. He was indignant about the man's plight, about the indignity that had been passed on to him, what sin had wrought, the brokenness of our condition, the religious and social structures that had conspired to dehumanize him. In fact, Jesus is so moved that he does something that, again, the existing social and religious laws both prohibited him from doing. He reached out his hand, 
And he touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. He reached out his hand and he touched the man. You know, I want you to think about this. You know the scriptures. In other places in the scriptures, how does Jesus heal? Oftentimes just by pronouncing healing. Just pronounces with a word. You're healed. Not this time. This new king demonstrates very publicly there's a new kingdom in town. There are new rules that we now abide by. We don't do things that way anymore. Toward, towards that end, Peter says that Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone. Which, if you know the story, he went and, I mean, the next verse, I think, basically says he went and told everyone, which is more of the problems with the crowds. But, he says, go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Again, if you go back to what they all knew had to be done in the Torah, right, in Leviticus, right, there was three purification rituals for a leper to be declared clean. Jesus tells the leper to just go back to the temple and do the final one, the last one. Why? Because, number one, Jesus had already removed the impurity from this man, which was the first um, phase. And the second, second phase was that the priest would declare the man unclean. That didn't need to be done or clean. Jesus already declared him clean. All that remained was the sacrifice of the third phase. That was the third phase. So that sacrifice, then the priest would allow him to be readmitted to the full communal and spiritual life. And note also what Jesus does not do, which was required by the law. It was very clear. When Jesus touched the leper, he was supposed to now head back from Galilee all the way to Jerusalem, go into the temple, and go through all of the purification rites and rules for himself. But Jesus isn't going anywhere. Why? New kingdom. New king. New ways. New rules. And note while he tells the leper to go to the temple and keep the law, as a testimony to them, go to the priests and show them what happened and tell them you're skipping steps one and steps two. Why? As a testimony to them. What's, what's he testifying to them about? Good news. There is a new king and a new kingdom breaking out. How do you think that news was received back in the temple? Well, you know... New kingdoms and new kings can be kind of threatening. And they certainly can make for some strange bedfellows. Wasn't received all that well back in Jerusalem. But there in Galilee, Mark wraps up chapter 1 with this. He goes, yet the people still came to him from everywhere. Immediately, story number two, right? Forest starts to emerge a little bit. Jesus is at somebody's home. We don't know who's in the city of Capernaum. And again, the crowds are gigantic. They're gathering from everywhere, right? Everybody wants to hear about this new news that's being taught with authority. Peter told Mark that, that and he was there. He says that we, you know, they gathered in such large numbers, there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. What was Jesus preaching to them? Any guesses? Good news. <laughs> The kingdom of God has come near. It's at hand. Repent and believe. Reorient your life. Think differently now. Of course, Jesus had a reputation beginning to grow for his healing, having authority over sickness and disease. 
Why should you believe the news, right? How do you know it's not fake news? Well, the crowd would tell you it's not just how he taught, but it's what they saw, right? We saw these things. This guy was doing things that would be impossible for anybody to do. How do you know he had authority over sin? Well, because part of the reason that things are in the way they are in the world, part of the reason we get sick is because of the brokenness of our world. And this guy seemed to have the ability to reverse the curse of sin, interesting we read these stories of miracles and we're tempted to think oh you know these first century rubes they weren't all that smart they they were so superstitious they they probably just wrote those miracles and hearing healing stories and you know later on to try to get people to believe because it was so easy to fool people back then friends that is that is um such pretentiousness on our part the complete opposite is actually true. These stories were as hard to believe for people then as they are now. If you were trying to convince people of who Jesus was, you would not write these stories in because they would easily be discounted by people. There is only one reason that Peter over and over again says to Mark, write this story down about healing. Write this story down about this miraculous thing. Do you know the only reason that he would make sure that, that John Mark wrote all those things down? Because they happened. It's the only reason you would write them down. They were as hard to believe then as they are now, but Peter's like, look, I'm telling you, I was there. Write it down. And so they're at this house in Capernaum, and there's big crowds now gathering, right, for this new rabbi speaking about this new news with authority. And four friends are bringing their, a friend, a fifth friend along, and their friend is paralyzed. Some of you know this story, right? And they're bringing him along on a mat, and their thought is they're going to get Jesus to heal him, right? And when they get there, I mean, it's just, it's chest to chest, right? There's a line down the block to, to get to the house. But they are so certain that their friend, because they've heard the news, they, you know, they've, they've seen the healings. They're still in Capernaum, and so they, like the leper, they know that Jesus can heal their friend. They hope he'll heal him. This is faith. They hope he'll heal him, but they know he can. Their faith is so strong that they climb up on the roof of, of this house. They dig a hole through the expensive tile ceiling, and they lower their friend down into the middle of the room. It's a crazy story, the components of which we could talk about all day. I mean, just think about that, right? Like, we read that, and like, you're like, oh, that, you know, it's one sentence. How long would it take to dig through the roof? I mean, imagine somebody's coming through here, right? Like, what were they all doing while they were digging their way through? It's a weird story. Stuff's starting to drop on everyone, right? And whose house is this, by the way, right? Like, imagine the guy, what are you, <laughs> it's the last time you're inviting Jesus over. But Mark doesn't give any of those details because that's not what the story was about. For Peter, the story had much more of a profound impact because Peter's trying to tell a bigger story. Next sentence, guys lowered in front of Jesus. Next sentence, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. And again, there's a lot to talk about there. I'm not sure that that is exactly why the paralytic had dropped in. You know what I mean? See what I did there, by the way? Jesus was more concerned for the man's deeper need, right? Um, for his deeper healing, that's a sermon for another day. But what captured Peter's attention wasn't that. It was the reaction to what Jesus said that struck him so, so, so powerfully. He said that some of the teachers of the law were sitting there in the room thinking to themselves, 
Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they were right, of course, right? If I were to come down off the stage and smack my good friend Dave all in the head here, right? And Betsy looked at me and said, John, I, I forgive you for hitting Dave, right? That would be meaningless. Nothing had happened to Betsy, right? Uh, the only one, in fact, it would be offensive to Dave, right? What do you mean you forgive him? You have no right to forgive him. Who's the only person that can forgive me for smacking Dave? Dave. He's the one that the sin was committed against. And, and so these guys are right, right? The only person that had the right to forgive sins was God himself, because those were the ones that, that he's the one that they, these things are committed against. And with these just a couple of words, Jesus begins to declare himself something other than a good teacher. It's another claim about his authority, about his kingship, about his divinity. I can forgive him of his sins because I'm the one he committed the sins against. And again, there is a system in place for this kind of thing. Who do you think you are, Jesus, number one? What do you think? Who do you think you are? You can't forgive those sins. Only God can. And number two, there's a system in place for this. If he wants to be forgiven of his sins, he would have had to have gone back to the temple in Jerusalem. We have money changers there and some tables and some nice doves and various other sacrifices and rituals and rules and priests. And, and there's a whole thing built up around this. That's the way sins get forgiven. And Jesus doesn't prescribe any of those things for this guy. Do you understand how offensive and threatening this new news is for the priest and his audience? Who does this guy think he is? He's about to tell them. The scriptures say that Jesus knew what they were thinking about him, which note to self, right? Whenever we get ourselves in, in bad places, we kind of think we can hide from God. And do, Mark's going, no, nah, he kind of, he just knows what you're doing. He knows what you're thinking. Knowing what they were thinking, Jesus said to them, which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and take your mat and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man, he, he, he uses another claim of, of messianic authority there in divinity, I want you to know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. One commentator regarding this question, listen, this is so good, right? He said, on, on the first reading, you read that and you go, Jesus seems to be saying, well, anybody could say your sins are forgiven, but not everybody can heal. To show you, therefore, that I am the Lord with authority to forgive sins, I say to you, pick up your mat and walk. The apparent implication, right, is that it's a lot harder to heal somebody than to forgive somebody, and Jesus is signaling his power to do the latter by performing the former. But... This is such a profoundly puzzling question because it has more than one answer. Jesus is also saying, my friends, it's going to be infinitely harder to affect the forgiveness of sins than you can imagine. I'm not just a miracle worker. I'm the Savior. Any miracle worker could say, pick up your mat and walk, but only the Savior of the world can say to a human being, all your sins are forgiven. Many biblical scholars say that here, as early as chapter 2 of Mark, the shadow of the cross falls across Jesus' path because he knows what the religious leaders are thinking. And so he knows if he begins to let on that, that he's not just the miracle worker, but that he's also the savior of the world, they're eventually going to kill him. 
If he not only heals this man, but he forgives his sins as well, he's taking a decisive, irreversible step down the path to his death. By taking that step, he's putting a down payment on your forgiveness. I tell you, get up. Take your mat and go home. He got up, he took his mat, and he walked out in, front, in, in full view of them all. Again, Mark's, Peter says, Mark, write it down. Everybody saw it. You could go talk to the people that were there. Everybody saw this. He did it in full view of all of them. It amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. There's a wonderful story. I'm going to skip God by it quickly about Jesus calling Matthew to be his disciple. Matthew, a tax collector. Matthew, the worst of the worst. Matthew, a traitor to his own people. A scoundrel. The person perhaps furthest from God that Jesus walks by one day and Jesus stops and in front of Peter and, and James and John and Andrew, he invites Matthew to come and follow him. I don't know who's the most offensive person that you can think about. I'm not going to say it from up here, but you know, you've, got, you've got some people that you can't, oh my gosh, there's no way. This is who Matthew was. He was whoever. Well, you put, you put your own name on it, right? But that's who he was. You should read the story. It's laugh out loud funny, actually. I mean, you got to imagine Peter going, no, no way. I am not. There's no way, Jesus, no way. And it gets even funnier because <laughs> Jesus goes, hey, let's go back to your house. And so Jesus drags Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, they head back to Matthew's house. And Matthew, listen to this. While they were having dinner at Matthew's house, Levi and Matthew, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were so many who followed him. Apparently, all these scoundrels are following Jesus, the worst people. And they all are at this massive party. I mean, I don't know what you want to just create your own image of what hell would look like for you, but that's what was going on, right? Like, just surrounded by people you can't stand. When the teachers of the law, who were the Pharisees, saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Some of you know Jesus' famous answer to that, right? He goes, on hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Of course, Matthew's like, shh, shh, these are my friends, right? But then, he <laughs> calls all the tax collectors and sinners sick. And Peter's sitting there going, yeah, this is... But Jesus doesn't end there, and he goes, I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners. And Peter goes, yeah. Oh, that's right, you called me too. He offends both of them. Right? He could have offended all of them. But somehow they didn't pick up their their spoon and go home from dinner, right? There was something about being in the presence of Jesus which made them understand their condition. It was like they understood who they were in light of who Jesus was. But the fact that Jesus loved them anyway, it was his love for them even though they were unrighteous and even though they were sick, which he proved over and over, it allowed them, it allowed him to speak to them like that. Jesus is saying, look, everybody's invited and no one deserves it. There's no one healthy, and there's no one righteous. I've come for all of you, because all of you share the same sickness, the same brokenness. 
The ones who know they're sinners and the ones who think they're okay. The ones who've broken all the laws and the ones that are trying to keep them all. They both need the same thing, me. This is a new kingdom where all the other ways, the other paradigms, the other natures and identities, they all, they've got to be stripped away. None of those ways of relating to God, none of those ways that you see yourself matter anymore. There's a new king in a new kingdom. At one point, they come to Jesus, and they're really upset now because he's not fasting. His disciples aren't fasting. John's, John's disciples are fasting. You know, the good religious Jews of the day, they, they were fasting. And so they come to Jesus, and, and, and they're like, I don't understand, man. Your people are not obeying the rules of the current kingdom. And Jesus sums up, makes a radical statement. He goes, guys, nobody sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. In other words, right, you, you didn't just go shopping back in the day, right? You would repair your clothes, and if you had an old pair of pants, you wouldn't sew a brand new piece of fabric on there, right? Because that brand new piece of fabric would then shrink and rip the pants some more. You would have to use like an older, you know, a, a worn piece. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on, on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. They understood that. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins, right? Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. In other words, what I'm doing, what my disciples are doing by following me is something brand new. You don't have a paradigm for what is taking place here. How you relate to God, brand new. How God relates to you, brand new. How the Old Testament laws relate to you, brand new. How you get right with God, brand new. Commandments of this new kingdom, brand new. Cultural norms, brand new. Ruling authorities, brand new. How you find peace, brand new. Who's included, brand new. And then he sets to show them, I mean, again, forest through the trees. He, he sets off to show them how offensively brand new it was. Because I'm telling you, new kingdoms, new powers, new wineskins, mm, they're offensive to old kings and old kingdoms, and they make for strange bedfellows. One Sabbath, Jesus is walking through the grain fields, and, and as his disciples are walking along with him, they begin to pick some of the heads of the grain, right? And the Pharisee said to them, look, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Many of you know, right, one of the Ten Commandments that God gave Moses was remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. It was one commandment, but oral laws and, and, and traditions, rabbinic traditions, had grown up around that commandment to the point that there were actually now 39 specific things you could not do on the Sabbath. Many of you have experienced this sometimes. Uh, if you go into New York City, you'll see an elevator, and it's the Sabbath elevator, right? And so it just runs up and down. Nobody needs to touch a button because you're not permitted. It's another law that's grown up around these things. You're not permitted to touch a button on the Sabbath. That would be work. So you don't want to violate the Sabbath. And that's what's going on here. What are you doing? Right? The thought was that we related to God by keeping the law. These are the laws. They would, they, they would make more and more of them, and they would get more and more specific because how would you ever know if you were righteous unless you kept the law? I got to keep the law. Well, how do I know if I'm keeping the law? Well, let me make more laws to make sure that I'm keeping those laws, and then I'll feel better about myself, right? That's how you relate to God. This is how you keep them happy. In fact, it was so ingrained in the way people thought, right? 
Peter gives Mark two of the same stories right in a row. I never noticed this before. Same story right in a row. He then immediately tells him that on the Sabbath, Jesus was in the temple, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Now, it's interesting because Peter doesn't say the man with the shriveled hand came to Jesus to be healed. The man with the shriveled hand just happened to be in the crowd in the temple. But you know who else was there? The Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And there was a law about healing on the Sabbath. And you know what the law was? You don't do it. It's the Sabbath. I know his hand is messed up. I know we might be in some pain. I know there could be some anguish there. But it doesn't matter. You know what matters more? The law matters more. You don't heal on the Sabbath. He can wait, hopefully, till tomorrow. In fact, who knows? As I read the story, I couldn't help but wonder, right? Maybe the guy's actually a plant in the crowd because they came hoping to see Jesus do this. They wanted to see if he would, after that first story about grain, maybe he doesn't understand how serious this is. We'll, we'll stick a guy with a, a, a shriveled up hand in the crowd and see if he does anything, right? He doesn't come up to Jesus. Could have been a setup, but it doesn't matter because the guy never goes up to Jesus. Jesus goes to him. And he says to the man, and Jesus sees these people here trying to catch him. He says to the man, Stand up in front of everyone. You can imagine the crowds, right? Just a hush falls over everybody. Peter's probably thinking, oh, God, no, right? And so Jesus asked them a question. He goes, guy standing there, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to, to save life or to kill? And so... They just kind of sit there. They're not going to fall into any of Jesus' kind of mind games, so they're just staring at him. But in other words, Jesus is asking him, what's the point of the Sabbath? What are the, what's the point of the laws? Peter, Peter's there, and he can't believe it. He tells, he tells John Mark, he goes, Jesus looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. Same time, same thing with the indignancy, right, that he had with the leper. Same story over and over and over again. And he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. And what was Jesus' point? He was just reiterating what he had told the people about the law after his disciples had picked the grain. This is one of the, the biggest sentences in the New Testament, okay? If you want to understand the New Testament in a way maybe you've never understood it before, this singular sentence might explain it better than any other, uh, any other sentence. Just in the incident right before, as, as they're picking the grain and Jesus is looking at them and they're like, oh, your disciples are picking the grain. It's the Sabbath. Jesus looks at them and he says to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, stick with me, church, why does the law exist? Is it because God loves his law so much? I mean, he's just so proud of his laws. He's up there shining them up every day. Loves them, right? Every day he thinks of a new one that he likes better than the one he created yesterday. And he loves, so, he loves the law so much, he's just up there in heaven pounding them out. In fact, he's so in love with the law that one day he says to himself, you know what? I should make for myself some people so they obey these laws, right? I should make some people to serve the laws. Is that how much God loves the law? Because that's not it. Now, we think that sometimes, don't we? Because we relate to God that way a lot of times. I heard one person put it this way. They said it's like parents purchasing toy after toy just getting a house full of toys and then saying, well, I guess we should probably have some kids. 
love these toys so much, probably should get some kids to, to play with them. No, the toys come along after the kids for the benefit of the kids. Why? Because the parents love the children. God did not make us because he needed somebody to obey the law he loves. God, because he love us, loves us, gave us the law for our benefit. The law is not the point. People are. Do you see that? Why was Jesus indignant? Why was Jesus so angry? Well, because, friends, what was the Sabbath about? It was literally a visual picture. It was an experiential weekly remembrance, right? About restoring the diminished, replenishing the drain, repairing the broken. So the man with the hand gave them the opportunity to do what the Sabbath was about, but they loved the law more than they loved the man. Their hearts were as shriveled as his hand, as I heard somebody say. This is the good news. You do not relate to God by being good, by keeping the laws, by adding more laws to ensure you don't break the existing laws. The old wineskins, they, they, they were used to that, right? They, the old wineskins said, I perform, therefore I'm accepted. The good news, the new wineskin is this. You are completely, this is completely, by the way, diametrically opposed to the old wineskin, right? The good news is you're fully 100% accepted and deemed clean. Jesus' cleanliness comes on to you. That's the good news. The old story was, if I obey, I'm accepted. The new news is you're fully accepted. Believe the news. And then because of it, of course you would want to obey. The law was given for you. The old wineskin was, I, I got to give God something, right? And then he owes me. The new wineskin is that God didn't owe me a thing, but by his choice, he gave me everything. And out of my deep love and appreciation for him, of course I obey. The old kingdom ways were, right, I'm saved by being better than everybody else, right? I look around, I, I kind of compare myself to how you all are doing, and I go, well, you know, relative to Dave all, I'm not a bad guy. <laughs> That's what happens when you sit in the front, Dave. In the new kingdom, right, in the new kingdom, it's a kingdom where Peter and Matthew are hanging out in a house full of, I don't know, I, you know there's, I just want to give examples, but I know I shouldn't, but just full of people you wouldn't be comfortable with. And they each look at each other and go, we're no better than each other, are we? We're in the exact same situation. Simply accepted by God because of his choice and his grace. Do you see how radically different the kingdom is? Which leads us to the conclusion of our story, my friends. That's the end of the stories, and here's how those stories conclude. It's the weirdest ending ever. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill him. Who were the Herodians? The Herodians were the people who represented the occupying power of Rome, right? Rome had set up King Herod to rule on their behalf the country of Israel. The Herodians represented the kind of cultural elite of the day. They were the worldly people bringing in like, you know, kind of the Greek ways of living, the Greek gods, the, the way the Greeks lived, thinking. They represented the empire. Who were the Pharisees? Well, the Pharisees were the resistant movement to the Herodians. The, Harris, the Pharisees are like the religious conservatives. They, they're the moral majority of the day, right? They're the ones that are trying to look at the Herodians and go, don't bring that trashy lifestyle into our kingdom. We 
We are the moralists. We're the ones that do all of the right things. We separate. We don't even go by the Herodians. The Herodians are the bad people, and we're the good people. Tim Keller likens the existence in Israel to the red states and the blue states here in America. The Pharisees felt like leaders in the red states, that, that their traditional values and moral values are being overwhelmed by the co cosmopolitanism and relativism of all these blue states. And the, these leaders of the blues, there are leaders of the blue states and the red states, right? And these two kinds of people never talk to each other, never. They can't agree on anything. They can only agree on one thing, and you know what it was? Jesus has got to go. Welcome to a new kingdom, my friends. See, you get caught up in the old kingdoms. You get, fighting, you get caught up fighting old battles, old wars. There is a new kingdom and a new king. The new kingdom is neither religion or irreligion. It is neither moralism or relativism. It is not traditional moral values or do whatever you feel like you do, you boo. It's neither. Jesus tells Peter at the dinner, right? The dinner that um, he is there for the unrighteous and the righteous. And he tells Matthew and his friends that they're all sick in need of a doctor. They both need him. There are two approaches to life. You know this, moral conformity or self-discovery. Conservatives or progressives. One says, ah, the Bible, that's not for me. That's so unenlightened. I want to discover myself. I want to declare for myself what is good and right and true. And on the other hand, there's the moralists who say that I'm going to do everything. I am going to do everything the Bible commands that we do. We must implement these things. But in both cases, don't you see what you're trying to do? In both cases, you're trying to save yourself. Both groups wind up hostile to the message of Jesus. I'm telling you, if Jesus came, we'd crucify him again. They both lead to their own sense of self-righteousness. The moralists, right, say, they say they're the good people. Those are the bad people. We do all the good things. They do all the bad things. So we're in, they're out. The progressives, right, the, the open people with more open minds, they look and they go, well, look, we're the good people. They're the intolerant bigots over there. And you know what Jesus is saying? You're both wrong. You're both the same. You both desperately need me. The good news, listen to me now. The good news, the gospel does not say, right, the good are in and the bad are out. The gospel does not say, the good news is, is, is not that the open-minded are in and, and the tolerant are in and, and the bigot and old-fashioned are out. No, the good news says this, the humble are in and the proud are out. The people who know they're no better than anybody else are welcome to the party. I'll conclude with this. It's an old saying, Jesus did not come to take sides. Jesus came to take over. Let's stand and sing.